Well, good morning. Welcome to Life Point Church. My name is Adam Purcell. I'm the teaching pastor here. We are really glad that you're here to worship Jesus with us this morning. Whether it's your first time or you've been here so many times you've lost count, we are truly glad that you're here to worship Jesus with us this morning. We're in the second to last week in a series that we've been calling Senior Moments, where we've been looking through the, the book Hebrews and the New Testament. We've been looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 11. And, and really what we've been doing is we've been looking at this, what, this passage that's often called the, the Hall of Faith, where this author is pointing to all these incredible faith-filled people from the Old Testament. And so today we're going to be looking back at the prophet Jeremiah. And our our big idea for this series is don't forget to look up. Because the reality that you and I experience in our culture is that we find ourselves, I think, often sprinting from thing to thing to thing to thing. And we have these wonderful, wonderful devices that often kind of draw our attention down because we can see kind of the world like right here on our our phones. And and it's really easy for me and, and I think also for you to to go hours, maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe, maybe months or maybe years, and, and just kind of forget that there's this great God who's up, so to speak, who, who loves us, who sent his son Jesus to redeem us from our sin through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so what I want to do is kind of pose a question for you and, and draw a little bit for us. So that, because like when we look at Jeremiah today, part of the theme is, I mean, Jeremiah, he's called the, the weeping prophet. Like, and so, so if we don't understand something about this, this propensity of ours to look kind of horizontal instead of up, we're, we're not really going to be able to understand anything else. And so we're going to take some time uh, before we jump into God's word and, and, and just kind of draw uh, really, and I'm going to maybe teach you two words, or maybe you already know these two words. And so the question that I want us to think about for, for a moment, is what is the purpose of life? Like, like if, you could, like if, you, if you and I could sit down and I were to say, hey, what is, what is the highest priority? What is the most important thing for, for you personally, but also just generally, what, what, is, what is the purpose of life? And, and here, here's the challenge that you and I experience, and so I'm going to draw a really detailed version of you, know, you or I or whomever. And so, so here's the challenge that we experience. When, when we are just kind of in autopilot in our particular culture, we, we, are, we tend to have our eyes drawn towards what, what is called the imminent. And, and this would be things, actually, I'm going to draw this first because I want to switch colors. Um, and so, so in contrast to the imminent, so when you think imminent, just think here and now. So the imminent is here and now, here and now. And so that sprint that we often experience going from thing to thing to thing to thing, that, that, that's a great picture for you of here and now, the imminent. Like what is right here in front of my face? I can touch it. I can feel it. I can experience it. That's the imminent. And then in contrast to, to the imminent, there's what's called the transcendent. And for our purposes this morning, we're going to put in parentheses here, holy, and then down here we're going to have two things. We're going to have happy, and we're going to have help. And, and for the sake of time, there, there's subcategories to all of these things. This is not meant to be exhaustive, just, just enough to get us to where we we need to get to today. So, so here's, here's the challenge that you and I have when we think about this purpose question, like what is the purpose of life? Because of this propensity of our culture to shape our viewpoints, we, we tend to always be having our attention drawn to this, like we're drawn to happy or help, drawn to happy or help. And, and the, the challenge that you and I have if we're, uh, you know, and we're here, right? And so maybe you're already a Christian, and so you're trying to say, yes, becoming holy, which means like loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, that's the purpose of life. And some of you, you're, you're not quite there yet. So you're not sure exactly what you would say the purpose
purpose of life is in regards to Jesus. But I mean, either way, we're, we're all here. The, the challenge for us is, even though most of us would say, yes, this is what I'm aiming for, like knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, he gives me holiness as, as a gift. I acknowledge all those things. What, what happens in our culture in this sprint from thing to thing to thing to thing, even though we would say with our lips that holiness, that Jesus is the purpose of life, what, what, what happens, and it's this subtle thing that like sneaks into your, to your thinking and your, and your daily habits is this one, happy, becoming happy, being happy, growing in happiness. That becomes really the priority. And then what we tend to do, because we're, you know, we're good people, right? like most of us are good Midwestern folk, and so we know helping people is important, right? And so what we do is we take help, and I'm going to switch colors, I think that'll, let's go blue. So what happens is help gets moved down there. And so, absolutely, I'm going to help some people. But really, when I'm helping people, and I don't consciously think this, but I know I couldn't be happy if I wasn't engaging in some kind of minimal helpfulness, right? Because then I would feel selfish, which would minimize my happiness. That's bad. And so I'm going to help just enough to keep my happiness where it needs to be. And, and there's this really subtle thing that can also happen where, where our love of Jesus, our knowing Jesus, our pursuing Jesus, you know, we're, we're going to do that thing, but, but that thing is subjugated to what is really our primary motivating purpose for life, which is my own purpose for happiness. Now, it, it ought to be clear to you that if, if at bottom you think happiness is the purpose of life, that's going to impact a lot of your daily decisions, that's also going to impact your view on suffering because the Christian view is different from our culture's view, which I think I would say some form of, yes, happiness in the here and now, the, the imminent is all there is, is what our culture would like to tell us in many ways. And so if, if the here and now is all there is, if I'm not happy in the here and now, if I'm suffering in the here and now, that's just an accident. It's messing up the purpose of life, and we need to resolve that and get rid of that as quickly as possible. However... If, if something like holiness, if, if knowing Christ, loving Christ, really is the, the highest good, really is the purpose of life, then, then it becomes possible for you and I to have a, a different, and I would say a Christ-centered view of suffering. It, it becomes possible for us to have a different view of, like one of our points today is seek the good of the city. Well, even in that statement, well, what is the good of the city? What is the highest good? How should we prioritize our efforts to seek for, to impact the city for, for the good? And so if you're interested in this sort of stuff, there's a couple books that, one, I'm going to read a quote from you, uh, for you from this. This is a really big book. Most of you don't need to read this, right? But if this is really interesting to you, this is Charles Taylor. It's called A Secular Age. Um, it's, you know, it's big, right? Um, I, I would recommend checking this out sometime. Essentially, what, what he's doing in this book is he's saying, hey, in 1500, everyone, everyone being in Western Europe, everyone believed in God, right? In 2000, in the West... Not very many people believe in God at all. It actually has kind of become the default position to maybe not believe in God. And he's a philosopher asking the question, what happened? And, and part of what he talks about is this thing that he calls the imminent frame. And what he means by that is our default is right here. Here and now, here and now, here and now. As opposed to above and beyond, above and beyond, above and beyond. Our, our default is here and now. And even if you know, you know Jesus and you love Jesus like I know Jesus and I love Jesus... The challenge is I'm, I'm deeply shaped by what I experience day to day, 
and that always is drawing my attention down to here and now, here and now, here and now. And that's why we're saying, don't forget to look up. Don't forget to look up towards the transcendent, to use our language from this morning. So uh, this book, Disruptive Witness, this is a much thinner book, and it's also highly engaging. I'd encourage you to actually pick this one up and read it. This is for most of you. And so let me read this little section to you. He's talking about um, how this eminent frame, our culture, shapes us to always be looking to the here and now. And so he says, to get a sense of what this looks like, consider for a minute what it is like to attend church on a Sunday. We've all done this this morning. Good job. You are awakened by an alarm on your cell phone, an amazing piece of technology and a testament to the power of human mastery over the natural world. You eat eggs for breakfast. They come almost miraculously clean, large, and white in a carton that has been inspected by some government agency to ensure it is safe. The carton lists the nutritional components of the eggs along with a few words about their health benefits. Everything has been considered. You get dressed in clothes that you bought ready-made. You drive to church in a glistening, energy-efficient sedan. That was not my reality. Praise God, I hope it was yours, right? But in in advanced safety features and glance occasionally at the cars next to you in which people are completely preoccupied and content with the technology around them. As you drive through the city, everything you see appears as a work of human achievement. Stoplights, fire trucks, businesses, freeway overpasses, he said skyscrapers, we don't so much have that. Anyways, by chance, you see a bluebird and immediately reflect back on a recent episode of an animal show you watched that featured the bluebird. Bluebirds are part of the thrush family, you say to no one in particular. At church, you sing songs praising God's provision, his mercies, his creation, and his grace. But everything you experienced on the way to church, from the food you ate to the beauty you witnessed, testified to humanity's ingenuity and mastery of the world. Your experience of the world was a testament to humanity, not God. Because everything in your experience conditioned you to look to this world and its physical laws. It all makes sense as a self-sufficient, imminent, there's a word, imminent world, even though you know that Jesus is our creator and sustainer. And so we experience life in the imminent frame, even as we confess that it is open to an outside transcendent force. Minus the skyscrapers and, for me, the eggs, right? I mean, that was our experience, right? Like we, we live in this world where we are constantly accessing these marvels of human achievement. And those are great things. But, but what Charles Taylor's book and this book, Disruptive Witness by Alan Noble, what, what, it's, what that passage is pointing out is all those things, they, they draw our attention to the here and now. And, and if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, I'm going to make happiness the highest good. I'm going to make Happiness, the most important thing, and I will subjugate my holiness, my pursuit of knowing and loving Jesus, obeying his word below that. And so anytime there's a conflict, my habit is going to be choose happiness. And yeah, I'm still going to help people because I don't want to be a horrible person because that would impact my happiness. And so what I want to say is don't, don't forget to look up. Because if you find yourself constantly living in what Taylor calls the imminent frame, the rest of what we're going to talk about, you're not going to be able to understand and so I'm going to pray for us, and, and my, my prayer for us generally for this week is that seeing this would maybe help us to realize maybe, maybe we've been living in that imminent frame, and maybe we've been forgetting to look up. Maybe we've not had a habit of looking up to this great God who really is there, and he is above and beyond, and also by his spirit, he's, he's here and now, praise God, he, he, can, he can do both. Uh, and so maybe God will change us while we're here together studying his word. And so let's take a moment and let's pray and ask him for help as we get into Hebrews 11 and then Jeremiah 29. Uh, Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for 
how gracious you have been to us. And, and Father, all these uh, technological achievements that we just spent time thinking about, God, they're, they're gifts ultimately um, from you. And so, Father, we, we praise you for those things, but, but Father, we, we ask that you would not allow us to spend our days um, stuck looking at the here and now, um, stuck pursuing happiness or even helpfulness as the highest good, but God, that you would, by your spirit, change us to make us more like your son, Jesus. God, that you would give us the new life that comes when we confess Jesus Christ as our savior. And Lord, Father, please give every single person here that gift. And Father, as we open your holy word, thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. Father, please help us to become more like your son, Jesus, as we study it together by your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read verse 32 and then 36 through 40. We've really been in this little section of Hebrews 11 uh, today and then the last two Sundays. And, and Jeremiah is the person we're looking back at, and so we'll, we'll spend some time in Jeremiah 29 as well. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Skipping ahead to verse 36. Others suffered, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, if you've not read Hebrews before, that something better is Jesus. God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so, so in, in that passage, he talks about others, you know, they suffered mocking and flogging. He mentioned broadly the prophets. And so we're going to spend some time looking, looking at Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah, as I mentioned earlier, is often called the weeping prophet. Essentially, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 1 and then later in chapter 7, God, God essentially says to Jeremiah, hey, I'm going to send you with a message from me to my people who have been sinning against me for centuries. And guess what, Jeremiah? They're not going to listen to you because they've not been listening to me for hundreds of years. And even though I'm going to send you and I'm telling you to be obedient to this call, I'm just telling you, it's not going to, from a worldly perspective, it is not going to go well. And Jeremiah, he goes. And he speaks the words of God to the people of God. And it goes essentially like God said. It doesn't go well, Jeremiah 37, 15, which won't be on our screens, it says, this is Jeremiah 37, 15, and the officials, these are God's people, the officials within God's covenant people, Judah, were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. And so, you know, when Hebrews 11 talks about somewhere beaten, somewhere imprisoned, one of the people in view is is Jeremiah. Now, the context of Jeremiah is essentially God says to Jeremiah, tell my people that Babylon is going to come and just destroy everything and take them into exile because they've not been listening. Call them to repentance. But God knows they're not going to listen. And so Jeremiah does that at the same time. And you'll see this in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14 is what we're going to read next. There were other prophets who were false prophets saying, oh, no, God's not that mad. God's not going to do anything mean. God's, God's going to bring us back from exile super soon. It's not a big deal. So there are all these other people who were claiming to be prophets who were telling the people what they wanted to hear. But Jeremiah is the one saying, no, this is, you're going to be here for a while. 
because of your sin. God sent Babylon as his instrument to execute his judgment on us, his people whom he loves very, very, very much. Not a popular message, but, but the one that God sent Jeremiah to give. So Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14, which will be on the screens for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The subtext of that is settle in. You're going to be there for a while, right? Verse 7 But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future. And I hope a lot of you, that's like your life first, great, great life first. Like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to, to give you a hope in a future. Amazing. Memorize it. But I would encourage you, remember the context of that first, right? It's in the context of their mortal enemy just walked into Jerusalem, killed everyone they they knew and loved, and burned down the temple of God. That's the context. He goes on, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so if you've never read Jeremiah before, it's a pretty intense book. A lot of it is in Hebrew poetry, and some of it you'll find confusing. But again, all the Bible is God's word. It's all really good. And so certainly would encourage you to go read it, read it on your own. We're going to make kind of three observations that flow from kind of Jeremiah's life broadly and then the text specifically. And so the first observation we'll make is by faith, we can suffer well. So, so by faith in God's son, Jesus the Christ, when we know him and trust him and love him, by faith it becomes possible for us to suffer well. And so, so there are two questions that are related to that. There's actually more than that, but we have time for, for two. So the first question is, what do we mean by that? Like, what, what does it look like to, to suffer well? How could we describe what it looks like to, to suffer well? And the second question that I think is like more personal is, how? Like, tell me how. If you're telling me that there's a way to suffer well, I know that either I'm suffering now or that my day is coming. Like, everyone, if you don't know that, you need to know that. If you're not suffering now, your day is coming. My day is coming. And so, so because of this imminent frame that we tend to be locked into, when we think about how we can suffer well, we think about technique. Like, hey, give me like two or three tips, tricks, so that I can suffer well. And if you look in the scriptures for techniques on suffering well, you're not really going to see that you're going to see the scripture saying, hey, you need to trust Jesus and develop character that is Christ-like. That is, that's the technique, right? And, and we don't like that because when we think technique, we think I could learn this in 30 seconds. I just watch a quick YouTube video, got it. There's, there's not a YouTube, there actually probably is a YouTube video for that one. I wouldn't watch it, right? Unless they're saying develop Christ-like character, which can take decades, right? So, so how do we do it? It's not a technique. It's trust in Jesus. But, but what do we mean? 
And, by, and for what we mean, I'm going to give you three R words. And so it's, it's rely, it's refine, and rejoice. Rely, refine, rejoice. Rely, refine, rejoice. And so if you're asking, well, what does it look like for, for me or someone else to suffer well, the first thing we'll say is we, we rely. And what I mean by that is our reliance on Christ grows. So sometimes in an evangelical church world, what we feel like we're supposed to do, and we're not supposed to do this, is because you, you heard me say rejoice. And so we skip right ahead. We skip past rely. We skip past refine. And we feel like, okay, I know I'm supposed to rejoice in suffering. The Bible says that. And so I'm going to skip straight to rejoice. And that, that's, not, that's not what we're supposed to do. When it's really, really hard, you're allowed to say, this is really, really hard. And I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I'm struggling suffering. Like we're allowed to be honest about what's going on. We don't skip straight to rejoice, but we first go to, man, my reliance on Jesus, it's increasing. Because I, 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 just, I just literally, we, like we, I, however that suffering works in your world right now or in the future, like we just knew, like we couldn't make it without Jesus' work in our lives right now. Don't pretend your pain is small. Remember that your God is big, right? Don't, don't pretend your pain is small. Remember that your God is big. Part of this reliance on Christ is what he does by his spirit just in us. Like he, he gives us this internal fortitude and strength and praise God that he does that. And so for a lot of us, that's all we're looking for. And so don't forget that he, he, gives, us, he gives us that satisfaction, that sense of his presence. But, but Jesus also gives us stuff, if we can say it pejoratively like that. And often that stuff comes through his body, the church. So when I'm suffering and when you're suffering, it's often humiliating, right? Like you, you've lost health, you've lost a relationship, you've lost a job, you've lost respect, you've lost some money, you've, lo- you've lost. And so you feel a little bit less than you normally feel. And when you feel humiliated, our tendency is to hide and to not tell others. And this is why for us, this is why life groups are so important. Like there are, there are people in, in my life that if things went catastrophically wrong, they would know. And, and I'll be honest, my tendency in those moments would be to hide because I'm independent to a fault and I would not want anyone to help me. But that's the opposite of relying on Christ. When we suffer, if you're asking, what does it look like to suffer? Well, we rely. Our reliance on Christ, it should increase. And part of that is, yes, Jesus just working on my heart and giving me strength, absolutely that. Praise God, he, he does that. But part of how we rely on Christ in the midst of suffering is by allowing us to receive help from the body of Christ. And that's, that's this, but it's also, it's that smaller group of people who they know you, they love you, they're taking the time to know and encourage you. Jesus gives us strength and he gives us stuff is maybe a way we could say that. And so first thing, how, what does it look like to suffer well? We, are, we rely, our reliance on Christ increases. The second thing is refine, and so our refining into Christ-likeness, it, it grows. And this is where we're reminded of the gospel message. And if you're new to church or haven't maybe been told what the gospel message is, and so if you read the New Testament, what you're going to see, you're going to be introduced really quickly to this guy named Jesus. And, and we're here 
because we think he's alive. And so the scripture tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life. He was then arrested and then tortured and then executed on a cross. And the word tells us that his shed blood pays the penalty for our sin. It frees us from our slavery to sin. But he didn't stay dead, but rather on the third day he rose again. And he has conquered death and he invites everybody everywhere to trust him and to find salvation in him. But if you notice at the centerpiece of the Christian life, there's a cross. And Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they better pick up their cross and come after me. And so the Christian life, whether we like it or not, and in our imminent frame, we don't like it because it messes up our happiness. But the centerpiece of the Christian life is looking to Jesus. The symbol of our faith is the cross, which is a symbol of suffering and victory. And so if you're asking, what does it look like to suffer? Well, yes, our reliance on Jesus goes up, but also our refinement into his character goes up. He gives us righteousness as a gift. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from, from the dead. And so when suffering goes well for us, we can, we can say what Paul here says in Philippians 3. We say, man, everything I had, I counted as loss. If this suffering makes me more like Jesus, then I'm in. Like, I wouldn't choose it, but I'm relying on God more than I've ever relied on God. And I, and I see God refining me into the character of Christ, which then gets us to, and that's why you can't skip the rely and the refine, but yeah, we get to rejoice. It becomes possible for us in Christ to actually rejoice in our suffering. Our rejoicing in Christ grows. First Peter 1, 6 through 9 says, in this you rejoice, talking about what Christ has accomplished for, for us through his death and resurrection, though now for a little while, if necessary, so sometimes God spares us from suffering, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested or refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Which is all of us in this room who say we love Jesus. We've never seen him. Man, we love him. And he goes on. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Romans 3, or 5, 3 through 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And again, if everything in your life is the here and now, the imminent frame, it is no longer possible for you to do what Paul says we do. Because suffering wrecks happiness, and if happiness is the primary goal, you can't rejoice in suffering. 
But if there's something higher than, more important than our moment-to-moment happiness, then it not becomes possible to do what Paul says we do, which is rejoice in the midst of suffering. Not lying that it's easy. It's not easy. That's why it's called suffering. But somehow in the midst of that suffering, we rejoice. So Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something. What do we know, Paul? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so describing what it looks like to suffer well, which by faith in Christ becomes possible. Sometimes we'll probably do it. Sometimes maybe we'll fall short. But we rely, refine, and rejoice. Our reliance on Jesus goes up. Our refinement into his character goes up. And our rejoicing can actually increase in the midst of suffering. By faith, those things become possible. The second observation we'll make, and this is more from Jeremiah 29, by faith we can seek the good of the city. Right? If you notice in that text, you know, God through Jeremiah is saying to the exiles in Babylon, but seek the good of the city, pray for them. And so, so it's easy for us to read that and automatically think of our own city and maybe Knox County, maybe Central Ohio, and we think, oh, of course, yeah, it totally makes sense that we would pray for the good of our city. But don't forget the context in Jeremiah. He's, God is telling Jeremiah to tell his people, hey, you know the people who, like, they, they murdered all your friends and burned down the temple? Your enemies? Those people aren't your enemies. I want you to pray for them. I want you to seek the good of the city. And God uses this passage in Jeremiah to remind us that the people that we think are our enemies are not our enemies. We live in a challenging time, especially politically. And some of us look across the aisle, whatever side of the aisle you are on, and you see enemies. God is reminding us through Jeremiah that who you think your enemy is is not your enemy. Like we seek the good of the city. We pray for the city and everyone in the city, whether we would align with them on certain beliefs and practices and political whatevers or or we're on the opposite side, these people are not your enemies, is part of what God is saying to us and the people through Jeremiah. By faith, we can seek the good of our city, but when you think about our introduction, we have to ask, well, what is the good of the city? Like, we, we and we is everyone everywhere, we have limited resources. We have limited time. We have limited money. And so... What should we make as a priority when we pray for the good of the city, when we seek the good of the city? Because I think as churches, we feel the pressure from our culture to give answers that are solely within the imminent frame, right? And so, and so we do some things, right? So, so our church, we're feeding almost 80 kids, 80 elementary kids who, as far as we know, as far as the principals have told us, might not be getting food on the weekends. That is really good. We're going to say picture to people of what happens in the kingdom of God. When Jesus gets his way, blank. It's a great question to think about in your time, thinking about how can we seek the good of his city. So for example, when Jesus gets his way, kids are not hungry, True statement? Yeah, true statement. So we, we pack 
bags of food for 70, I think it's 76 children in our community every single week. And, and I was literally just joking with someone this morning. What I have found, and this is not surprising, everyone's in favor of feeding hungry kids. You know why? Because it's in the imminent frame, right? Like we want those kids to be happy. And we do want those kids to be happy, right? But it's, it's right here in the imminent frame. It's here and now, here and now, here and now. And as churches, we feel this pressure to do all of our seeking the good of the city that's just right here in the imminent frame, here and now, here and now, here and now. We have another uh, program that we've just started um, this, this fall called Arise to Read, where we're um, sitting down with um, students at Dana Elementary School that are second graders because we know that if they're not at reading level come third grade, the percentages of them that land in jail or addicted to something, I mean, it's, it's really staggering what the stats say about the importance of reading at level in third grade. And so... So we go on help. If you're interested in, in helping with that, we would love to, to talk with you uh, about, about signing up and, and being at Danamon Elementary School on Wednesday or Thursday. And again, we're doing it. It's really, really good work. But again, I want to point out to you, it's right here, which is why everyone in our community, whether they love Jesus or not, they're in favor of that. Do you see how the answer to your first question, what is the purpose, impacts your view on seeking the good of the city? So six and a half years ago, we planted this church in Mount Vernon. And our primary goal is to make disciples, right? To help people know and love Jesus. Does that count as seeking the good of the city? Or is that some other thing that we happen to do, but that isn't seeking the good of the people in our part of central Ohio? Do you see how your answer to the first question shapes the answer to this question? Because if, if this is all that matters, the imminent frame, here and now, here and now, here and now, then the fact that we planted this church in Mount Vernon and that we've seen over 100 people get baptized here and that we're all here this morning singing about how amazing Jesus is and studying God's word together, like it's nice, and if you happen to like it, good for you. But we're not seeking the good of the city. And I would say no, if the highest good is knowing Christ and loving Christ, this is the most important thing we do. When you go to your life group sometime this week and someone is helping you connect to other people and take your next step in your spiritual journey, that is the most important thing that we do. And we do these other things, honestly, because when Jesus gets his way and we fill in the blank, like, and we have limited time and limited resources, but we want to show people in our community what the kingdom of Jesus looks like, which includes hungry kids are fed, kids who need a little bit of help to read well so that they can hopefully be successful someday. It includes those things, and we're doing those things. But when Jesus gets his way, people love Jesus. When Jesus gets his way, I go out of my way to witness to him, to help current believers take steps in holiness. Those are the kinds of things that happen when Jesus gets his way. So by faith, we can seek the good of our city, and I, I would challenge you to remember, the good of the city, it includes this. It includes all this stuff. But those aren't the most important things. The transcendent, the holy Jesus, he is most important. People knowing him and loving him is most important. 
our church right now uh, is moving towards um, building facilities in Mount Vernon and also in Lewis Center. And so one of the ways that we're praying for our city is we're doing 40 days of prayer. Um, and so if you haven't signed up for that, I just want to encourage you to do it. You can do it on the app or our website. It's on the blog. And so that's kind of a quick application. Let's pray for our city. Hopefully you're already praying for our city. But if you want to develop that habit, we would love to help you do that. The last thing we'll say is by faith we can seek and share God's kingdom. By faith, we can seek and share God's kingdom. So specifically, how did Jeremiah do this? And so Jeremiah sought the kingdom of God by prioritizing it over everything else. Because again, if Jeremiah were stuck in the imminent frame and God said to him, hey, Jeremiah, I'm gonna send you with this message. It's gonna be wildly unpopular and no one's gonna listen to you. Jeremiah could have said, no thanks. I'd rather do what the false prophets are doing and tell them what they wanna hear. No one will know and then I'll, I'll die a rich and happy man. Jeremiah didn't do that. Jeremiah said, okay. Whatever you say, God, that's what I'm going to do. If you tell me to say this and they're not going to listen, they're going to beat me and throw me in jail. Okay. He prioritized the kingdom over his momentary comfort, over his happiness, you, you could say, and his obedience to God's call. And so we're invited to seek the kingdom to prioritize it over all other things. Matthew 6, 20, 20, 33, Jesus says to us, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things, God knows you need all the other things. All those other things will be added to you. But you seek first the kingdom, Matthew 6, 33. But Jeremiah didn't just seek the kingdom, he shared the kingdom. And how, how Jeremiah did it in our passage that we read, he's warning others about these deceitful prophets who were just telling the people what they want to hear, which was essentially, hey, your sin, not so much a big deal. God's not really that angry. Everything's gonna work out just fine. And Jeremiah has this wildly unpopular message saying, no, no, no. First, the Babylonians, not your enemies. Pray for them. Second, settle in. You're gonna be in this place that you don't wanna be, away from your home, for a while, settle in, plant a garden, build a house, get married, help your kids get married, settle in. Jeremiah was sharing the word of God to the people, and we too have the privilege of seeking and sharing the kingdom of God in our community. So here's, here's the, the, one of the challenges we experience. Uh, our culture, I've been listening to a podcast lately and their shorthand for what our culture seems to want, and I would agree with it, is we want the kingdom, and by the kingdom they mean when Jesus gets his way, blank. Everyone wants that, minus the king. We want the kingdom without the king, because if there's a king, there's someone who has authority over my life, someone who can call me to obedience, someone who can call me to sacrifice my happiness for what he defines as Holiness. We don't like that. We want the kingdom without the king. So here are some, some things I jotted down that I think we feel, and maybe even here in our, in our culture, and maybe even our heads and our hearts. Jesus is nice, but unnecessary. Trusting Jesus means doing whatever I want and loving people. Trusting Jesus doesn't really impact your daily life. Sin is something other people do, really bad people but not something that I do. Follow your heart. God's word doesn't say that, or it says that, but it doesn't really mean that. The Bible isn't God's word. Hell is not a concern. 
live for the moment. Entertainment is essential. Upgrading is essential. New clothes, new home, new car, new devices. It's essential. Prayer is an optional add-on to the Christian life. Generosity, optional add-on to the Christian life. Christian community, life group, confession, walking with others. Optional add-on to the Christian life. Witnessing to Christ, sharing the gospel. Optional add-on to the Christian life. I stopped there. I could me get the gist, right? You and I are constantly tempted to adopt these as driving beliefs. And if you were to, I can, I can send you the list if you want, what you'll notice, the theme of the list is it encourages us, just stay right here. Stay right here. You know, if, if happiness can be increased by glancing up every now and again, okay, that's an optional add-on to your life. So I was studying for this week. I was reading uh, another great book. This is by Timothy Keller. It's called Walking with God Through through pain and suffering, and I want to read you, uh, to close today, a story. It's um, written by a woman named, named Emily. I just realized my bookmark, totally not on the right page. I'm glad I wrote down in my notes the page that it's on. Here we go. If you had asked me what I was thinking, thankful for before September, I would have said that I am thankful for my family, my home, my job, and for God, for a husband who loves and cares for me, for four children ages 14, 11, 9, and 5, who are healthy and happy, for a home I never dreamed I could have, for a career that allows me to work from home, use my brain, and make a difference for my company and my clients, and for a God that has provided me all those things, regardless of my worthiness." In September, completely out of the blue, my husband left me and our four children for someone else who left her husband and two children as well. This other family were friends of ours. We'd vacationed with them on three separate occasions during the summer. I thought they were our friends. My heart died within me. This could not be happening. My Christian husband, the one who with me sat down with our kids and explained that while divorce does happen, it would never happen to us. We made a covenant, a promise to God and to each other. No matter what, we will always be here for each other and for them. I sobbed and begged him not to go, that we would figure this out. Nope, he was leaving. I asked him what he was going to tell the kids. He said he didn't know. I told him, you can't just leave without telling the kids something. Surely this would hit him. He would not be able to look at those precious children and tell them that he was leaving. But he did. He called them back downstairs from bed and told them he was leaving. They didn't understand. Is this for work? When will he be back? No, kids. I'm moving out. I'm not coming back. He left, and we were crushed. After eight weeks, my heart was still crushed, God, is this really your plan? How could this be your plan? I know that you will heal my heart. I know that something good will come from this, but how and why this? I feel you. I feel people praying, but what is going to become of us? I have never been so 
angry. Our poor children are suffering terribly. Their fathers once come before their needs. I still love my kids, he says. Really? How can you love them and cause them so much pain? After four months, God is beginning to heal me in a way I'm not sure I want to be healed. I want to see justice, but it is not mine to inflict. I am beginning to try to pray for him, not about him. I am beginning to pray for his heart to be healed, for him to come back, not to me, but back to God. I need to move on without him for now and maybe forever. But I have to forgive him to get through the bitterness. I will not be bitter for the rest of my life. But how am I going to make it? God says, pray. So I do. I love my family, and I will always love the man I married. I'm praying for a miracle. For him to snap out of this and find his way back home, but I am also moving forward without him. I'm planning on trying to continue my life with everything that needs to be done from a practical, spiritual, emotional, and financial perspective. I am going to pray for him on a regular basis. I am going to love him, but I will not be a doormat. I am going to support my family, and I am going to seek God's plan for our life. I am going to forgive him, but I won't forget. Because if I forget, I won't be able to use what I learned to help others who may go through this nightmare. I need to feel the pain. To allow God to heal that pain and transform me into someone that he had intended for me to become all along. Somehow I feel excited. It feels wrong in so many ways to be excited to be going through this nightmare. It has now been six months. My situation has gotten worse, and yet I feel truly blessed. My husband is still gone, still with his girlfriend. He has told me that they will be a part of our kids' lives, and I need to get used to that and not hate her. He told me that if she was my enemy, then I was his. My kids are still dealing with the impact that their dad left. They are depressed, angry, confused, and frustrated. My oldest has started questioning his faith. He is rebelling against all authority and lashing out at his family. My house is up for sale a short sale, which could, bring, which could turn into being a foreclosure. We have no idea where we will move. And yet in the midst of all of this, I have come to know God on a different level, to see him work in a way that I had only heard about. To experience this is quite amazing. I've never had a big tragedy in my life. Never really had to depend on God. I mean, sure, I prayed and saw God work and not like this. I never had the need to rely on God, truly just fall and rest on him. When I needed God's comfort, the image in my head was me clinging to Jesus and him hugging me. My image now is me just completely collapsed and him carrying me. And it is awesome. I love how she closed She said, really nothing all that bad had ever happened before. My image before of God's comfort was Jesus giving me a big old hug. It's a great image. Now she's collapsed. She's come to the end of herself. And the image isn't of Jesus giving her a hug, but Jesus carrying her collapsed, helpless body where he needs her to be. By faith, you and I can suffer well. And part of that is what she talked about, Jesus providing us this incredible comfort in the midst of our suffering. But I just want to point out to you one, one last thing. 
the subtext of her story is at some point in her past, someone told her. Might have been her mom, might have been her dad, might have been a youth pastor or a children's pastor, might have been a friend from school. Somebody told her that Jesus died for her and that Jesus lives and that Jesus could be hers. And so let's be a people who seek the good of the city. And part of that is when we share the great news about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because like Emily, my day is coming and your day is coming and everyone that you know, their day is coming. And the question really is, will we endure that day crumpled in Jesus' arms or on our own? By faith, we can seek the good of the city. Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, we praise you that it is now possible for us by faith in your son, Jesus, who suffered on our behalf to suffer well. And Father, not just to suffer well, but God, to seek the good of our city as you have commanded us through the prophet Jeremiah. Father, we're gonna need your help. Father, please help us to suffer well. God, please help us to remember to look up. God, it is so easy to get stuck looking at the here and now, the here and now, the here and now. So God, draw our attention as a habit to your son Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. Father, I ask that every single person here would trust and love your son Jesus. Father, for those of us who... We've already been doing that. God, please increase it in us. And Father, for those who, that would be new. God, please give them that gift this morning. Help them to place their trust in your son Jesus, calling on him for salvation. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.